Now, today I'm going to share with you about the Lord's work in Liberia and uh, some experiences that we've had over the last year or so. Uh, well, I believe it's been almost two years since we've been here. Um, at that time, I shared a report with the uh, South Florida missionary class, and some of you guys may have been there. For some of you who, who are not familiar with, uh, with, with our work in Liberia, I'd like to just kind of point you to um, our website here that you can see on the screen, www.timliberia.org. Okay, it's going to come up. There you go. Um, and, and my wife, Lois, uh, she, she has some things that she's going to set up, um, and she'll have some prayer cards. So if, if you do have questions and if you want to know more about the ministry in Liberia and if the Lord works in your heart and calls you to come on a short-term medical mission, Rex, where are you, Rex? No? Okay, uh, then, then uh, you can refer to that and, and contact us. Um, now, I, want to ask, I just want to start by asking a question. How many of you guys here have heard about this country, Liberia? Okay. How many of you here heard about Liberia or learned about Liberia in school? Okay, less hands. And how many of you here are familiar with the history of Liberia? Wow, okay, one hand, two hands, maybe. So this is really interesting for me because um, I'll say, before the Lord called me to Liberia, the first time I ever went to Liberia in 2011, I really had no idea about this, this unique country in West Africa and, and our very rich history and ties to uh, Liberia. And over the years, uh, and especially as the Lord began to work in our hearts and call us to go full-time and serve among the Gola tribe in Liberia, we've learned more about the history and I think it's important that we understand uh, this unique country that we have a tie to in West Africa. Uh, now, let's, let's just uh, commit our time to the Lord, and we'll go from there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved us, who redeemed us by his blood. And we thank you, Lord, that, that we stand here as those who have, who have been redeemed, as those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as those who are called the children of God, and so we are. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would bless our time together now as we, as we look at your work in Liberia. I pray, Father, that above all else, that you would be glorified. Just as Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Lord, if there is any fruit that has been born in this ministry, it is by your grace, by your enabling, and it is therefore to your glory. I pray that you would be magnified that the hearts of your people, myself included, would be stirred to give thanks and praise you for what you are doing in this little country in West Africa. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, now Liberia is, if you can see the flag here, it's referred to as the Lone Star uh, Country. Texas is the Lone Star State. Liberia is the Lone Star Country. Uh, notice something interesting about that flag. What flag does it look like? Looks like the U.S., right? And that's because Liberia has a very rich connection to the United States. It was the oldest, it, it is the oldest, and, and was therefore the first republic on the continent of Africa. That's significant. Consider that while Liberia is surrounded by many countries which were colonized by European powers, Liberia was technically never colonized by a Western power. Something. Okay. So, there we go. All right, so 
Um, in the early 1800s, uh, there was an effort or a movement in the United States called the Back to Africa Movement. And, and the whole idea with this was a, it was a philanthropic effort, not a government effort, but a philanthropic effort to help freed American slaves make their way back to Africa and establish a country for themselves where they could be free. Liberia was named Liberia because it was to be the, uh, the land of liberty. And in the early 1800s, a, a group by the name of the American Colonization Society was formed. And the purpose of the ACS was to help repatriate slaves, free slaves, from Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. And I think there were even some that came from Florida. And over the course of about 20 years, the American Colonization Society would successfully uh, repatriate 19,000 freed American slaves, would settle in an area of West Africa that we now call Liberia, and would help them get established. On the ships of, 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 of freed slaves that made their way to Liberia, there were educated freedmen, many of them, some of them graduates of Harvard University. And when they penned their constitution, it was largely based upon the constitution of the United States of America. When they established their, their republic system, they formed it after the system of government that you and I have in, in America. For a long time, up until the 1980s, Liberia had a one-party system called the True Whig Party. And if you know your American history, you'll recognize that name, uh, the Whigs, uh, a political party in the early history of the United States. And over the course of, of, uh, of this time, the, these freed slaves, or what we call the American Liberians, would establish a colony, or, or rather a country, a republic, that would become known as the Star of, of Africa, a country whose very existence represented democracy on a continent that, that was under colonial rule. At one point, Liberia was a great ally to the United States. In 1847, when the United States recognized Liberia as, as a republic, uh, they formed a treaty uh, whereby a ship flying the Liberian flag would be under the protection of the United States Navy uh, and under maritime law. During World War II in 1944, Liberia declared war on Germany and became a key ally to the United States. We, we landed our planes, refueled, and, and used it as a base of operations. How many of you guys knew this history? Isn't that interesting? However, there is a downside to this. The, the American Liberians, as, as we uh, uh, refer to them, or the freed American slaves, did something which was done to them. They disenfranchised, they marginalized, and in fact, in, in the case of the tribe that we work among, they enslaved indigenous Liberians. For the first hundred years of their history, uh, an indigenous Liberian had no representation in government. Up until 1980, every president of Liberia and every, anyone within the true Whig party was a descendant of a freed American slave. And up until the uh, fairly recently... If you were an indigenous Liberian, you had no education, no representation in government. You were, for the most part, marginalized as a people. Uh, if you go back and look at encyclopedias, uh, uh, there's an encyclopedia from the 1940s that makes the statement that in the whole country of Liberia, there's only 100,000 civilized peoples. And that gives you the idea of the attitude, the mindset towards the indigenous population of Liberia. 
Now, in 1980, a sergeant by the name of Samuel Doe, a master sergeant, a Kraw man, so an indigenous Liberian, was able to stage a successful military coup and overthrow and kill the, the American Liberian, or that's a descendant of the freed slave president, by the name of Tolbert. Samuel Doe later held elections and became the first indigenous president of Liberia. For most Liberians, that represented, that represented a new era, an era in which indigenous Liberians would be empowered, indigenous Liberians would have education, indigenous Liberians would have representation in their government. But in 1989, a civil war broke out in this country. That civil war started as a fight between the American Liberians and the indigenous peoples. And over the course of 14 years, it would become a fragmented war with many, many, many different rebel groups fighting and splintering and, and in some cases fighting against themselves. In 2003, Liberians, fed up with the Liberian Civil War, stacked the bodies of, of people who had died, innocent civilians who died in this conflict at the door of the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia, and they asked President Bush to send troops and stop this war. President Bush responded, the United Nations came in, and they were able to successfully end the Liberian Civil War. They only pulled out a couple of years ago. The effort to end the war in Liberia was the most expensive mission in the history of the United Nations. How many of you guys knew that? Isn't that interesting that we don't quite get all the history, do we? And so why is this important? Well, one of the tribes that was the most uh, uh, marginalized and the most fought uh, uh, by the American Liberians was the Gola tribe, the tribe that Lois and I now work among. The Gola people have a history of animosity towards the American Liberians. The Gola people, unlike most of Liberia, are Muslim. They're not Christian, as, as the American Liberians brought uh, uh, the gospel with them originally. The Gola people normally are not very accepting of, of Christians and, and accepting of outsiders. But God has given us an incredible opportunity to work among this people group. And I'm going to tell you how, how he did that here in a second. Um, real quick, just a few few um, fun facts. Uh, Monrovia is the capital of Liberia, uh, named after our president, President James Monroe. Uh, there's 15 counties, uh, what would be considered kind of like our states, um, but uh, they call them counties. Uh, there are 16 tribes. Uh, there's a population of about 4.8 million people. And people always ask me, what language do they speak in Liberia? Well, there are over 20 different languages. Some would argue that there's as much as 30 if you consider dialects within those languages. But the common trade language is Liberian English, otherwise referred to as Koloqua. Uh, Koloqua is a little different than, than our English, um, but uh, thankfully I've been able to come, become proficient in, in Liberian English, and I can preach in Liberian English and communicate fairly well. And I thank the Lord for that because it's an otherwise very difficult uh, language to speak. Uh, to give you an example of that, you might say uh, uh, in the morning, uh, good morning, how are you doing, um, come let's eat breakfast. In Koloqua, in Liberian English, you would say, good morning, oh, how about you? You would say, my man, come let fast little walking. <laughs> a little bit different, right? <laughs> so Koloqua has is, is, is got its own flair, but thankfully, being proficient in that enables us to communicate with anyone within these 20 different language groups, um, except for maybe some of the older folks. Um, Liberia has an 80% unemployment rate. It's interesting that corresponds with the illiteracy rates. There's about 80% illiteracy in the country, 80% unemployment. Remember, there was a concerted effort on the part of the American Liberians for the 
the whole history of Liberia to keep the indigenous peoples uneducated and ignorant. Today, post-Civil War Liberia, there's a lot of international influence, and thankfully, some of that has brought education and through missions, um, um, education to the indigenous peoples. Liberia went from being the star of West Africa before their civil war to being one of the poorest countries in, on the continent of Africa and one of the poorest countries in the world. 90% of their infrastructure was destroyed during the Liberian civil war. In 2018, a socialist government took over. Inflation has skyrocketed 100%. Literally, when, I, when Lois and I first went there, 100 Liberian dollars uh, uh, could buy a loaf of bread. Today, that same loaf of bread cost 200 Liberian dollars. Um, so many, many of the, the people who uh, uh, were promised to be helped to receive everything for free were the very people now who are suffering the most. Uh, we've had gas shortages. We've been in lines for days to get gas, food shortages. It really, and then, of course, COVID hit, and, and that's brought an, another dynamic to it. Now, I really am blessed and thankful to be serving with my wife, Lois. Uh, Lois is my helpmate. Um, people always ask her, you know, what do you do as a missionary? And, and I love her answer. She says, I'm a helpmate to my husband. We're not separate. We, we, we don't have two different ministries that we go about. We, we serve together. Lois does everything from administrative work to working with children and women in the local assembly. And I can honestly say that if God had not given me, given me my helpmate, I don't know how I would survive in Liberia. And I'm thankful for that. We also are blessed to be serving with a Liberian couple by the name of Alfred and Musu Varney. Um, Alfred grew up as what you might call a missionary kid, an indigenous missionary kid. Uh, back in the 1970s, his dad, uh, who was one of very few Gola Christians, was called by the Lord to take the gospel into the heart of the Gola Kane district and plant a church among these Muslims. In 1972, he was given permission to plant the first church in the Gola Kane area among these, the, these Muslim Golas. Alfred was just a little boy. He grew up under the sound of the gospel and the work of the gospel among Muslims. In the 1980s, missionaries came. Alfred started working for those missionaries, was discipled by these missionaries. And then the Civil War broke out. All the missionaries pulled out. Alfred and his family ended up getting separated because of rebel fighting. He couldn't find his family for seven years. He finally was reunited with them. And God called Alfred and Musu to serve among their own people, to equip them in the word of God so that if another civil war ever came and missionaries had to pull out, that the work of the gospel would not fizzle out and cease, but rather that indigenous believers could carry on that ministry. That is a vision and focus which we share, and we are blessed to be able to work with Alfred and Musu Varney. Um, in partnership with Alfred and Musu, we formed a, a non-governmental organization called the Indigenous Mission. Uh, this is legally required in Liberia. We called it the indigenous mission for two reasons. Number one, TIM uh, uh, for us kind of represents or, or points to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things that you have heard and learned from me commit to faithful men who can teach others also. It secondly, it, it, it illustrates in our name what our vision and goal is. That we would like for the indigenous mission to one day become entirely indigenous. That indigenous believers would carry on with the mantle of the gospel. Uh, when we established the ministry, we set up uh, uh, several principles in our constitution that, that we seek to follow. First of all, we're, we have co-equal directors. Alfred and I are co-equal in the ministry, uh, even legally in our constitution. There's not one director, but rather there's two co-equal directors. 
We did this because we want to illustrate again what our, our point and what our vision and goal is, is that the indigenous mission should be one day entirely indigenous. And one day, by God's grace, Lois and I, having worked ourselves out of a job, will cease to have a function in the indigenous mission, and it should be entirely indigenous. Um, we're not a parachurch organization. We, we sincerely believe that God works in and through the local church and its leadership, and we would like that any ministry that TIM performs becomes a ministry of the local assembly and under its leadership. To that end, we're equipping the local church and its elders, uh, raising up biblical, biblically qualified elders, and ultimately will be accountable to those elders. Um, and then encouraging and working towards self-sustainability through things like uh, um, agriculture, vocational training, homesteading. The desire is, is that at some point there should be no need for outside support, but rather that the work of the gospel and this ministry could carry on without uh, uh, the international presence. And then, by God's grace, working ourselves out of a job. That's the job of any missionary, the job of anyone in ministry, and the job of any elder, ultimately, is to disciple, invest in, in, in other believers so that one day you can delegate that responsibility to those believers. And that our highest calling and pursuit in this organization is first and foremost for the glory of God. It governs all which we seek to do. And I pray that that be true of us. Uh, this is our core team that we work with, Alfred and Musu Varney here. And uh, you can see, I don't know if my laser's working. Uh, you can see uh, Ruth and Kali Harris. Uh, Ruth is Alfred's uh, uh, sister slash niece. Um, his dad is actually his brother-in-law, and his mom is his sister. I'll let you guys figure that out. But uh, Ruth is kind of a unique believer in, in terms of Liberia. Remember that there's 80% unemployment in this country. Ruth was one of the 20% that had a job. She worked for a cell phone company in Monrovia. She gave up that job. Now just think about this. Imagine that you're a Liberian. You're one of very few people in your country that has work. 80% of the people around you are looking for work. And she gave that up to move out back to the village, to Ta, to carry on the work that her father started back in the 1970s. I am thankful and blessed to be able to serve with Liberians who know what it is to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and to serve the Lord without promise of support in faith missions. And, I, and we really are blessed to have this team working with us. Now, uh, we, we do have uh, where we are is, is out in the jungle. God has blessed us with a couple of vehicles that um, we use. And, and in fact, there's a couple in, in here today that, um, that had helped us to keep one of these vehicles running. And, and we want to just say thank you without um, um, pointing out and, and, and stealing your blessing, as it were. Um, thank you guys for your support and help in that. Um, these vehicles are, are workhorses. Uh, we go through some pretty rough terrain. Um, that's a video, and I'm going to skip that. Uh, it's muddy. It's dirty. It's hard. Our vehicles break down all the time. In fact, this truck right here just got a retrofitted uh, transmission and a welded drive shaft uh, that's keeping it running. Lord willing, uh, we're actually going to be getting a Toyota Land Cruiser that's going to solve a lot of these issues, and uh, God has been providing for that, so I'm hoping by next year that we'll be able to put that into use. But in the meantime, uh, this is what we go through getting to our village. We are out in a fairly remote area. What's funny is that you can go on Google Maps and look up uh, Tan, T-A-H-N, Liberia, and Google Maps will tell you it's an hour and 28 minutes from Monrovia to our village. 
And I would love for them to come and prove that to me because it takes me eight hours in the rainy season and about six or seven hours in the dry season. Um, the roads are pretty bad. So God has given us this incredible opportunity to work among the Gola people. Um, but here's, sorry, real quick, here's a, here's a map of Liberia. Here's Monrovia, and uh, here's our village, Ta. Somehow they actually got our, the name of our assembly, our church, uh, on Google Maps, and they, they, they put it incorrectly. Um, it's, it's actually Ta Bible Church. Legally, it's Ta Evangelical Bible Church. But uh, anyway, uh, there you are. Um, the interesting thing about Liberia is that here in the western side, this is almost entirely or exclusively Islamic. There's Muslim uh, uh, part of Liberia. And then the rest of the country identifies as Christian, though majority of that is either the health, wealth, and prosperity or um, an, uh, kind of an animistic, syncretistic worldview. Um, you have a lot of Christians who are part of what's called the Zoe, a secret society that sacrifices literally to demons, um, that practices in what they call the devil's bush, and then they show up on Sunday morning. So it, you can kind of deduce what you will about the church in Liberia from that. Uh, here's, a, here's a map of our district. Excuse me. And, and what you see here are these dots represent little villages. And circled in yellow is our village, Ta, with a population of about 2,500 people. But surrounding our village are all these little communities dotted throughout the jungle on these dirt paths. And what's interesting is that in some of these villages, even though this is predominantly Muslim, there are small pockets of Christians, Christians that had heard the gospel back in the 70s when James Varney went through their preaching. And today, these Christians are illiterate. They have no leadership. They have no assembly. They're asking us to come and teach them. They're literally asking us to come and plant assemblies in their villages. But that presents a challenge for us. And I'm going to tell you here in a little bit about our, our vision with the Bible school. But the idea is, is that being based in Ta, we have the opportunity to minister to and reach out to all these villages. And in case of the Bible school, bring Christians from these villages to Ta, train them in the word of God, and send them back out. Uh, so that it really is a unique opportunity being based here and, and reaching out into these areas. Here is uh, James and Tene Varney. As I mentioned, Alfred kind of grew up as a missionary kid, right? Well, this is his brother-in-law slash dad. And um, James Varney is a unique Christian. He was uneducated. He was saved through the preaching of, of a missionary. Um, he, he understood the gospel, responded to the gospel, was born again. The Lord did a great, incredible work in his life. And though he was illiterate... He could articulate the gospel. God called James Varney to carry the gospel from his area into the stronghold of Islam. And he went to the chiefs and the elders of the village and he asked for permission to plant a church. They said yes on one condition, that he bring education to help their children. And so James Varney planted the first church in the Golokane district. He facilitated the, the first school in the village. They asked him to help with education. He went to Monrovia, and God raised up two teachers that were willing to move out there. They started a school on a dirt floor in, a, in a, what's called a palava hut uh, with a thatched roof. Remember, the Gola were kept uneducated for a reason. But through James Varney coming, he was able to bring teachers, and education came to these, these people for the first time. He hosted the first missionaries in the 1980s. They brought a clinic and they brought medicine. To this day, the Gola people associate medicine with missionaries. Um, and for that reason, we get approached all of the time for medical work. Um, 
they had an orphanage. What's incredible about that is that, that James and Tene Varney did not have outside support. Even when the missionaries came, they said, we're not, we're not here to give you money. We're just gonna, we're just gonna assist in the work of the gospel. They took in orphans and fed them on their farm, or from their farm. Uh, they, they helped the elderly and widows. To this day, Tene Varney, who is almost, I believe she's in her 90s now, gets up every morning, cooks rice on an open wood fire, and carries food to the elderly people in the village. We recently had a Muslim lady who had a stroke. She couldn't walk. She couldn't bring a spoon up to her mouth to eat. Well, no one from the mosque went to see her or to help her. We heard from the clinic that this lady had a stroke, and because we do some medical work, we, we went and, and visited her. When Tene Varney found out about this woman, she started going every day to bring food and help her lift her spoon to her mouth and regain those motor skills. Today, this lady is able to walk. In March, she walked from her side of the village to our assembly and was there on a Sunday morning to give testimony of having put her faith in Christ. And you know what she said? She said, from the time I had a stroke, no one from the mosque came to visit me. But this woman came every day to bring me food and help me. Through that, she heard the gospel. And through the hearing of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart, she put her faith in Christ. These are incredible believers, and we are privileged to be able to serve with them. And that's what we want to see in the indigenous mission. More believers like this. Now, in the 80s, when the missionaries came, they, they took that school, which was on a dirt floor in a Palava hut, and they built three classrooms. Uh, they helped James Varney with a, with a building, a chapel, uh, for that small little church or small group of believers. They even built a Bible school dorm building in the back. They opened the Bible school, but it was only open for about less than a year when the Liberian Civil War broke out. This area is known as the Blood Diamond Route. Uh, that map I showed you of the road, that road, if you follow it, will take you to Sierra Leone. And what happened during the Liberian Civil War is that rebels rushed to control this area because whoever could control this would control the diamond route or the diamond trade route between Sierra Leone and Liberia. Ulemo rebels took over. They split into Ulemo K and J. The Ulemo K rebels actually took over the mission compound, pushed out the Varney family, and lived there for the duration of the Liberian Civil War. Today, to this day, we still pull bullet slugs out of the dirt walls. Uh, we, found, we find bullet casings when we're digging to put pipes down in the, in the ground. This was a heavily fought-over area. And um, I thank God, though, because the missionaries and their houses were completely ransacked. Uh, when the rebels came in, they even took the tin off the roofs. But because the commander of the Ulimoke rebels and his soldiers were in this, living in these facilities, they left, they left them in the condition they found them, apart from the bullet holes. And, and to this day, they're still standing. We've been doing a lot of renovation work and, and putting these facilities back to use for the work of the gospel and the glory of God in this area. Now, when we were welcomed uh, among the Gola, it's, it's traditional that you meet with the elders and the chiefs of the village, which, again, in this case, are all Muslims. And we said, we want to come here to serve the Lord, uh, to preach the gospel, to establish a local church, a Bible school. You know, we made our intentions fairly well known. And they agreed on one condition, that we help with education. Now, when I was first commended to, to go to Liberia full-time, I, I, had, I had served um, in Liberia since 2011, um, coming back and forth. But when we went full-time and, and, and I was commended in 2016, I had said, I do not want a school 
And I don't want to do humanitarian work. I want to focus on preaching the gospel, making disciples, building up the local church, and teaching in a Bible school. Well, you never say never with God. (laughs) Because the very things which I said I did not want to do became the things which we do today. And that's okay. Because I have seen, looking in hindsight, how God has used those ministries to break down barriers, open doors for the gospel in ways that I don't think ever would have been. And, and that's just incredible. So when we agreed on the, on the conditions, we were welcomed with the uh, ceremonial white chicken. Um, in the Gola culture, when you get this chicken, it's a representation of their quote-unquote white heart. It's nothing to do with race or the color of skin. It's about the purity of their intentions towards you, that they accept you. You are welcome among us. And uh, that white chicken represents an open door for the gospel. Seriously. Without that chicken, we would not be there. And uh, people always ask me, did you eat the chicken? Yes, we ate the chicken. That's, that's part of it. Um, <laughs> we, were, we, uh, we were actually given Gola names. That's also part of being welcomed there. Uh, when you come into the Gola uh, village, someone must take responsibility for you. It's what they call your stranger father. My stranger father is James Varney the one who first brought the gospel to the village. Uh, and James Varney, the name he received when he first went there was Ja, which means settler. He gave me his name, but added something onto it. He calls me Jafwa, which means the white settler. <laughs> For my wife, he gave the name Tene. That's his wife's name, Tene Juku, which means, um, liter- loosely translated means beautiful woman. Literally translated means a beautiful dancer. Uh, and my wife is not a dancer, but she is a beautiful woman. <laughs> and we are privileged to be working with the local church, the local assembly. And as I mentioned, this was started back in the 70s when, when James Varney first went there with the gospel. But when the Civil War broke out in 89, again, the missionaries pulled out. Everyone, uh, the rebels took over the, the compound and the chapel. Everyone was pushed out of the village because to stay there meant to be in the crossfire between these rebel groups. After the Civil War, very few of the Christians returned to Tong. Post-Liberian Civil War in, 2000, in the early 2000s, 2003, when James Varney and them came back to the village and took back the property, really meeting on Sunday was just the Varney family and a few children from the village. But over the years, the Lord has grown. And, and James specifically prayed that God would send missionaries to help restart this work and to help with the work of the gospel and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We didn't know it, but the Lord calling us to Liberia was part of that answer to his prayer. We are extremely blessed, and I am so excited to be able to tell you about this today. When I first went to, to, to Ta and began teaching in the local church, most of, our, most of the believers were illiterate. And the ones who could read uh, really couldn't read that well. And so... When I would start teaching on a Sunday morning, my conviction is to teach uh, verse by verse or exegetically through a book of the Bible. And I started in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I'll never forget the first question I had. One of the, one of the guys raised his hands and said, what is Paul? Well, it should be who is Paul, right? So what I quickly realized is that instead of teaching verse by verse, we had to teach word by word, defining vocabulary, looking back in the book of Acts, who is Paul, and all of these different things, work through a chapter, and then go back to verse 1 
and now start teaching and preaching through it. That's been a, 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 quite a labor in the Word with the believers. But in March of this year, in March of 2020, the dynamic has shifted. The Gola New Testament was completed. Fifty years in the making it took to, to translate the new, just the New Testament into the Gola language. Now, the challenge that the translators faced was that Gola is an oral language, not a written one. And so they had to develop it into a written form. We bought 300 copies of the Gola New Testament literally hot off the press. But I can't just hand a copy of the New Testament to anyone and expect them to read it, because they can't. The written form of their spoken language is still foreign to them. This presents an incredible opportunity for us. On September 2nd, this month, we started in our village the Gola, Adult Gola Literacy Program. We, we had people from the village who were so excited that the Gola language is now in written form and there's a book translated into their language that they could learn how to read. We had Muslims sign up who, and who are today meeting to learn how to read the written form of their spoken language using the only book that is translated into their language, which is the New Testament. Praise the Lord. When COVID shut down our school, uh, Grace Christian Academy, uh, back in March, I tasked our teachers and our staff with seeing how we could incorporate Gola literacy into our curriculum for the students. Now, our students are taught in English. They learn in English. Now, December 1st, uh, the government is, is going to allow our school to open. They're going to start learning how to read Gola in addition to their English curriculum. Um, and again, their textbook is the New Testament. 2017, when we first uh, um, got there, this was, this was our local church. This was breaking bread on a Sunday morning. Um, now, I, I just want to qualify this. There are no assemblies, or brethren assemblies as we would call them in Liberia. Um, and Lois and I are, are actually the first assembly commended missionaries there, at least since the Liberian Civil War. I think there were some back in the early 1900s. Um, so the idea of brethren assemblies doesn't exist but here's the great thing about, about the Word of God. What we call assembly principles are actually biblical principles of gathering, and they transcend uh, uh, cultures and, and etc. I don't have to call it a chapel in order to practice New Testament principles of gathering. And this has been an effort, as we've, as we've seen the local church grow over the years, of teaching biblical principles uh, uh, for a New Testament church, and we have seen them begin to adopt those principles. We do call it Ta Bible Church. We don't use chapel because with Muslims, the word chapel brings with it the idea of Catholicism. And we don't want to give the idea that we're Catholics. Uh, there tends to be some animosity between the Muslims and Catholics. It has something to do with the Crusades. Some, somebody know about that. This is in 2018. Um, um, we've, again, over the years, we've seen the Lord begin to grow this assembly. Uh, in 2018, we were privileged to baptize nine new believers. These were converts from Islam. This was an incredible event because we, my conviction is, is that baptism should be a public event, something that unbelievers could come and witness and hear a testimony. And so after Sunday, uh, after the family Bible hour, we, we marched as a, as a group, uh, from one end of the village, from the chapel over to this public stream. And as we were going, we sang a hymn in Gola, which translated means, uh, see what the Lord has done in my life. See what Christ has accomplished in me. And when we got down here, what's really cool is that the saints from the assembly are all standing here on the side. 
And all these people are just people from the village that were curious about what was going on. So by the time we baptized these believers individually, they were able to give testimony of what Christ had done in them, of having put their faith and been born again in Christ and having converted from Islam. Um, when we were on our way back, we actually had a lady who, who, she's a prostitute in the village. She came up behind us and started yelling out, Muslims are becoming Christians. Oh, they're baptizing Muslims. Like, just blaring this out to the whole village. And I thought, you know, what she meant for evil, God meant for good. That was a great testimony for the community. This is 2019 and 2020. We've got a great group of believers that we're working with. We do have more literate Christians now in, in, in fellowship. Uh, the men and women, by the way, separate just culturally. Men are on one side, uh, women on the other. But through COVID, we have been able to continue meeting. Uh, um, actually, Alfred and Musu started making masks and separating people out a little bit in chairs. But uh, thankfully, there have been no confirmed cases of COVID in our village, and, and we're grateful for that. Um, but this has been an incredible journey, working with new believers, coming out of Islam, teaching them verse by verse through books of the Bible, equipping them in the Word of God. But in, in 2019, the Lord convicted... Oh, by the way, James Barney does still do some teaching, but getting up in his, his later years, um, that's a little more difficult for him. Uh, and we always have a huge Sunday school. We, a lot of our students, we have 200 students in Grace Christian Academy. A lot of them will show up on Sunday for Sunday school. Uh, and that's been a blessing. One of the things the Lord convicted us of in, in 2019 was that we needed to be more intentional and intensive in our discipleship efforts. Not just casually discipling believers, but intensively and intentionally doing so. And so what we did is I, I, I talked to the church and I said, who would be willing to come three days a week, three hours a day to study the Word of God with us? We got quite a few people that responded. At first, I think we started out with about 20 people coming. on, on And we, do, we were doing it Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And over time, we've had people come and go, but there is a core group of 12, and I didn't choose this number, but there is a core group of 12 who are actually faithful in these discipleship classes. These are not just um, preaching times. These are actually open forum opportunities for us to discuss the Word of God and, and work through God's Word together. And we don't just sit down and learn and read. We actually go out and do. And I'll tell you about that here in a, in a little bit. I've also been privileged, um, once a month, Lois and I go to Monrovia to get supplies, and um, I was invited to teach at a discipleship training school, do a week of lectures there, uh, do that pretty much every year now, um, and then there's another church that actually has given us an open invitation, so if we're in Monrovia on a Sunday morning, um, the word I got was just show up, we'll give you the pulpit. And so anytime we're in Monrovia, we're ministering at a, at a church. This is a non-denominational church. I actually was able to do a Bible study and some discipleship with two of the elders and a deacon uh, from that church. Um, and so that's just been a great opportunity. The Lord has very much convicted us that the Great Commission is not just go into all the world and preach the gospel, but it's also making disciples, teaching them to observe all things which, God, which He has commanded us. We cannot say that the Great Commission has ended when we simply preach the gospel. Um, now, with the Bible school, our hope and intention is to uh, bring believers from those little villages that I told you about, uh, bring them together, and teach them the Word of God. As I said, we can't stretch ourselves thin. We can't go out into all these little villages and, and stay for months on end and work with these, these, little, these groups of Christians. But what we can do 
is six months out of the year when when Lyrani. When Liberia is going through their rainy season, which lasts about six months, you get really heavy monsoon rains. Liberians really have nothing to do, especially out in the jungle. And so what we can do is during those six months of rain, bring those Christians together. We have a Bible school dormitory building that we're renovating and equip them in the word of God for six months, working with them book by book through the Bible so that ultimately they can go back into their villages establish a Bible study, establish a meeting, ultimately that an assembly would be planted and they could teach the Word of God. Um, we received a, a pallet of courses from Everyday Publications in Canada, which is a sister mission to Emmaus. The thing I love about EPI is that their courses, Emmaus tends to be a little more topically focused, whereas the EPI courses, written much by the same brothers, um, are more book-by-book study focused. So you actually have a book uh, a course for each book of the Bible, for each, all 66 books of the Bible, with a few topical courses uh, kind of mixed in. And that's just really where our conviction is. In the Bible school, our desire is to work through each book of the Bible with these believers and, of course, teaching some topical things. Um, and so please pray for the Bible school. That's, that's something that we really would like to get up and going. And um, the Lord, uh, pray that the Lord would give us that opportunity. Now, Grace Christian Academy, again, the very thing which I said I did not want to do became one of the big, biggest parts of our ministry. Uh, we opened up Grace Christian Academy in 2017 with uh, uh, ABC, which you would call pre-K, K-1, K-2, and first grade. Then we opened it up to second grade and then third grade. And this coming school year, 2020-2021 school year, we're opening up, excuse me, to the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades. Um, we started out with a group of teachers who were pretty much locally sourced, um, and we, we, again, had a fairly small, we had about 100 uh, um, students in our, in our school, but over the years, that student body has grown to 200 um, and is going to grow a little bit more with this coming school year. This really started because the leadership of the village recognized that there is a huge lack of education. His people are very, very far behind educational, uh, education speaking. In fact, the clan chief said to me, he said, they keep us uneducated so that we have no voice in our country. For them, education means progress and development. And Muslims are willing to send their kids to Grace Christian Academy to be educated, knowing that we use the Bible to teach English. We actually have a curriculum that uses the Bible to teach English. And so we're privileged and blessed to have these kids every day to be able to minister to them in the Word of God and to their practical needs uh, through education. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, we're going to be doing, uh, again, December 1st, as the school year opens, uh, is we're going to restructure the school. And I'm just kind of skipping kind of quickly through this. We're going to restructure the school so that we can accommodate uh, those extra grades, 4th, 5th, and 6th grade. Uh, we're hiring actually three more teachers. I need to update this because we, we figured out we need one more teacher. Um, and again, these teachers are coming and we're sourcing them locally. One of the things that we've done as a ministry is to take in local teachers or people within, within our kind of uh, county, help them in their education as teachers, and give them a job. In Liberia, if you have a high school diploma, you can legally teach pre-K through first grade. From there, you need a C certificate, from there, a B certificate, and from there, an A certificate. And so what we did was, is when we started out, some of our teachers had C certificates, some were just high school uh, uh, graduates. 
Those who were high school graduates, we sent to school to get their C certificate. Those who had their C got their B, and those who had their B are going for their A. Um, last year, we were able to sponsor seven and give Fuller scholarships for that, in addition to sending Ruth uh, Varney Harris to get her degree in school administration. The benefit of this is that not only do we get teachers who are you know, improving the quality of, of their education and therefore the quality of the education they provide, but we also have them sign an agreement that if we give them a full scholarship, they will, they will work for Grace Christian Academy for three years. That's a blessing to us as a school for the continuity of our teachers. Um, it's also a blessing to them because if they decide to leave Grace Christian Academy, they've got a, a certificate or a diploma that they can use to get another job. Um, and so it's a blessing all around. We also do bring in teacher trainers um, with the idea of, of kind of improving the quality of, of our teachers and their teaching abilities. Uh, these teacher trainers work with them in lesson planning, phonics, um, activities, just different things. For Liberians, their idea of education is simply memorizing. With Grace Christian Academy, we want to make sure that the quality of education that's provided um, is, is above par, not, not at the status quo for Liberians. Again, remember that the education system in Liberia is designed to keep the indigenous people ignorant, uneducated, and therefore un, without any power in government. And so we want to raise that, that standard. When we first got there in 2017, this is what our school facilities looked like. Uh, the, again, these were built back in the 80s. But over the years, we've, we've uh, renovated these. Uh, we've added on to them, re-roofed, put in uh, um, running water, a solar system. Um, we actually even recently completed um, se- uh, six bathrooms with showers and toilets for the students. Kind of sounds weird that you would go to school and take a shower, but for these kids, that's a blessing. And for those of us who have to work around them, that's also a blessing. Um, It was significant that uh, James Varney here, again, who brought and facilitated the first teachers and first school in this village, broke ground for the construction of the new school building. And uh, I just thought that was very significant, that here he is almost in his 90s, and he he is seeing God answer his prayer that this work would continue on. And so we do have uh, uh, new facilities in place, and uh, this is actually a more recent picture of the school. This is a really good picture. I don't know if you saw the one before uh, where I showed you the three classrooms that the missionaries helped build back in the 80s. Uh, but as you can see now, the compound is, is really coming, taking shape. What's cool about this is that I have Liberians who come to us and say, thank you for the work. Uh, thank You know, like we put a new roof on and they're so excited. We put lights and they came and thanked us for those lights. And at first I was I was a little confounded. Like, why are you thanking us for lights on our mission? But it was just the idea that development was coming to their community. That their kids are going to a school that's being renovated. That that at night adults can come for the adult literacy program and have lights and fans and all of these these conveniences. That represents for them progress, and they are appreciative of it. In fact, the imam of the local mosque came and thanked us for the lights on the compound. Um, so that's that's really interesting. Uh, we do have a new water well. This is actually the most productive water well in the village. In the rainy season, it overflows 24 hours a day. You don't even have to pump it. It literally is just overflowing. Uh, what we did is we put a submergible pump in that well. Uh, we built a 46-foot water tower. Um, this is a, a little bit of an older picture now because we're going to have three tanks. Um, Alfred and I are the only ones that know how to do plumbing. So I grabbed some kids from the mission and I said, hey, let's go glue some pipes. Taught them how to do some plumbing. Um, it really was great. We were doing most of this in January and February. We also do some medical ministry, and um, God has really blessed this. Through the school, 
the Lord has broken down barriers. We have Muslim kids coming to school learning the word of God. The clan chief, uh, uh, who's the higher-ranking chief in our village, who is a Muslim, came to me and thanked me because his grandson went home from school and read a Bible verse to him. That's an incredible opportunity. Medical missions has also opened up doors for us. When I first got there in, in, in 2017 and we opened up the school, I all of a sudden had all these kids who were sick. I would have kids who would come to me with, with fevers as high as 107 degrees. It would, their fevers would be so high that my digital thermometer would stop reading and would just say, Hi, H-I. And that's because PFAS malaria or cerebral malaria is endemic in our area. Kids are the most affected by this because what happens is, is that a kid gets malaria. The parents don't know how to treat it. They don't have medicine to treat it or the clinic runs out of medicine. Usually they get a shipment every, every three months. Within a month, that's gone. So you have kids that go untreated with malaria. Their fevers get as high as 107, 108 degrees. And what starts to happen? Brain damage. In fact, the WHO and the UN had released a report suggesting that one of the reasons that African kids are, are undereducated is not just because there's so much corruption and lack of education, but because they're getting, they're, they're, they're literally having brain damage from the time that they're little kids because they have malaria that goes untreated. So if we can mitigate that, if we can prevent the malaria or treat the malaria as soon as it manifests, we can literally change the course of this kid's life and change the quality of that kid's life going forward. I had students getting sick. I'd bring malaria test kits and, and, and do a rapid test. If it was positive, we'd treat them with a very effective new medicine called Lonart, and within no time, that kid's running around. Um, and, and again, all it takes is just a little bit of mitigation. Uh, up until recently, a school day, is this, this is what, for me, it looked like. I'd wake up in the morning and have all these sick kids lined up. We sleep uh, over here. And so I had all these kids lined up. And, and it's, you can tell right off the bat if that's malaria. Typhoid is also very common. But the clinic, the local government clinic, which is responsible for 6,000 people, has two nurses. Actually, one is a midwife. So they have one nurse that has the, the equivalent of an RN. In Liberia, there are 173 practicing doctors to the whole population of 4.8 million people. So how do you take care? Most of those doctors are in Monrovia, by the way. How do you take care of all of the rest of the people in the country and their medical needs? What the government has done is invest the power to diagnose, treat, prescribe medicine, perform surgeries, and even deliver babies to nurses, to midwives. I mean, I've even seen the midwife take over for, for the nurse and prescribe medicine to people in our village. What that ends up, what, ends, what that means is that these nurses, having 6,000 patients in a district to take care of, they're overwhelmed. And so they asked us, when we started, they realized that we could help treat malaria. They said, would you just take care of the kids in your school? And that would take a burden off of us. We agreed. So we started taking care of the kids in our school. The next thing I know, parents are showing up. Remember that they associate medicine with missionaries. Whether you have a medical background or not, they're going to come to you and ask for medicine. And what we did is we said, okay, look, every month we started stocking up medicine. You go to the clinic. If the clinic doesn't have it, which they normally don't, let them write it on a piece of paper. I get these little cutout pieces of cardboard with a prescription written on it. Come to us and we'll help you with that medicine. And so every day I get a line of people lined up for medicine. One of the things we realized, though, is that we couldn't just trust those prescriptions. 
for you medical people out there, we actually had one, an elderly lady who was jaundice. Um, she had a stomach ulcer or, or at least um, uh, symptoms that were, you know, uh, um, in line with a stomach ulcer. She was hypertensive, had really high blood pressure, and she had rheumatoid arthritis. She went to the clinic. The clinic prescribed a very powerful NSAID along with, to co-administer, uh, uh, prednisone, which is a steroid, with no proton pump inhibitors, nothing to protect the stomach. For you medical people, you realize that NSAIDs cannot be given to people who are that hypertensive, and it cannot be given to people who have stomach ulcers. That could lead to bleeding. And especially, you cannot combine an oral steroid with an oral NSAID, or you're going to literally cause that ulcer to start bleeding, cause them to have a stroke, etc. I got that prescription, and having, through my experience, known that, had to literally send them back to the clinic with a note saying, you cannot give this, you're going to kill this patient. And so that's that's what the medical ministry has been like for us. We have brought in medical teams from the U.S. That has been a great blessing. In fact, the last medical team we brought got so much attention. We had people walk six hours from the bush to come and see the nurse practitioner and nurses that we brought in. A radio station heard about it and went on the radio and said, TIM is, is doing a medical ministry, and then more people showed up. And then the governor, who's called the, they, they call him the superintendent for our area, uh, Grand Cape Mount County, actually traveled to our village on a Sunday afternoon, called a meeting with us and our team to thank us for bringing medicine and helping their people with the medical work. It also has broken down doors with some of the most strict Muslims in our village. The Mandingo governors, a minority tribe that lives among the Gola, they're very uh, uh, strict Muslims. He never would talk to me. He would always be standoffish. He didn't like the idea of a Christian missionary in his village. But the clinic said that his mother-in-law was shaking really bad and needed help. They asked if we would come and take her blood pressure and do some things. So we came and we saw the Mandingo governor's mother-in-law. Our nurse practitioner said that this is most likely Parkinson's disease and prescribed level dopa. We were able to source that medicine for her, and guess what? That shaking cooled down. This lady was able to get a full night's rest. The governor of the Mandingos was so excited that he got on his motorbike, he came over to our village, he sat down on my porch, drank coffee with me, and thanked us for the medical work. I was able to share the gospel with Amara Kamara, the, the governor of the Mandingo tribe that day. I never, never would have been able to do so had it not been for helping out his, his mother-in-law. Today, TIM every month provides her Parkinson's meds, and we have a good relationship with Amara and with the Mandingo people as a result. Never discount what humanitarian work can do for the gospel. Something I said I didn't want to do became the very thing which God used to open the door. Um, we even had, a, we did it, we, we'll go out and branch up into certain villages and bring a medical team. We brought an indigenous medical team in November of last year. I had one guy named Moses. Moses had fallen off of his motorbike and fallen onto his, what they call a cutlass, which is like a sharpened machete. And uh, he punctured right under his, his, his rib cage and, and we believe punctured his left lung. When he came to us, he was in tachycardia, 122 beats per minute. Um, his oxygen levels were stable, but he was in a bad way, he had a bad infection. And I, I still remember I was cleaning out this infection, and, and everyone was getting queasy. It was really bad. We, we for sure thought that Moses was going to die. And we sat down as a team. We prayed with him, and we shared the gospel with him. And I just flat out said, Moses, it's very likely that, that you're going to die from this. And you're going to stand before our Creator 
and you will be judged. And I asked him if he knew whether or not he would go to heaven. And well, he was a Muslim. He has no assurance of that. We shared the gospel with him. He put, he prayed and put his faith in Christ. Now, I don't, I don't like to say this person got saved and so on until we actually see fruit. But I went. And I came, I went after the medical ministry and I came back a month later. Uh, by the way, we had sent him to the nearest hospital on a motorbike. It took eight, eight hours to get him to a hospital. But when we came back to the village, one of the local Christians came to me and said, you know Moses? Well, he's coming to the meetings. He's coming to adult Sunday school. He asked for a Bible. Moses is growing in the Lord. I thank God for this man. And through that medical ministry, again, the very thing I said I did not want to do, the Lord enabled us to share the gospel with a man who desperately needed that. Um, in fact, uh, uh, another thing that medical ministry has done is help us break down barriers. Um, you would think that the, we would get resistance from the Muslims, that that would be our, our really hard area. But the most resistance to the gospel that we've seen has not come from the Muslims. It's actually come from a cult uh, uh, your animistic traditional African religion, which is called the Zo, or depending on what area you're in, the Bono or the Sandi. The Zo literally worship demons. Uh, they go, they have an area which is called the Devil's Bush. That's their words, not my words. Uh, they go inside the Devil's Bush. They bring animal sacrifices. They bring colonets to sacrifice. And it's all to invoke these spirits to bless them, to make them successful, Etc. We've even had them go around to, this, to the, the parents of our students during the summer break and say, if you send your kids into the devil's bush, they will get a visa to America, they'll get a job, etc., etc. What's unfortunate about this is not only do they sacrifice the demons and perform demonic rituals, they also perform female genital mutilation. They call female circumcision. Something which boils my blood. We got to this, this village and we started doing a medical outreach. And one of the first things we had was a mom who came running to us. She said, my daughter is in the devil's bush and she has an infection and she's not doing well. Can you give me some tablets to bring to her? Our knee-jerk reaction was, "Is well, that's your fault. Uh, why don't you bring her in to us? Uh, we can't just send you away with medicine. But in the, under the Zoe ideas... If you are undergoing the rituals, you cannot enter into the center of the village and you cannot enter inside of a building. And so when we said, go bring your daughter so that we can look at her, the mom said, well, she can't come to the center of the village and she can't enter inside the building. And you can't go out there to see her. And again, the reaction was as well, this is what you get for being involved in demonic things, right? But then the Lord convicted us. We tried to gather as much information as we could, and we ended up sending some broad-spectrum antibiotics and some Tylenol to reduce fever. That little girl's infection went away. That mom came back to tell us that her daughter was doing better. We were able to share the gospel with her and encourage her to get her daughter out of there, something which, from what I understand, she is now, she's now done. She is against the zoo. So never discount what the Lord will do with humanitarian work. I'm going to end with this. We do a lot of children's ministry, um, evangelism. It's not hard to get kids together in our village. And um, I mentioned a discipleship training school that I taught at. Um, and uh, we had a core group in that school of about 10 Liberian young believers. 
And uh, I did a week of lectures with them. They did three months of in class. And then for three months, they go out on the field. They spent one month with us doing evangelism and practical work on our mission. One day, we took the team, went around our village, and we, we knocked, not knocked on doors, but we went up to people and invited them to come out for a skit, for a gospel skit. And they had learned these really cool skits, very Africanized, that speak to their culture, and then from there lead into the gospel. We had a huge crowd. Uh, this is only one half of the circle. They were circled around us. Over here, if, I wish I had taken a better picture. Over here is the mosque, and over here is the devil's bush. The way you can tell the devil's bush is that the trees are taller than the surrounding areas because they're not allowed to cut those trees down. While we were preaching the gospel, literally after the skit, this brother gets up, he starts preaching the gospel. Someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and pointed out that there was smoke rising up from the devil's bush and there were birds, blackbirds, circling atop those trees. And I said, well, that's curious. And a little while later, somebody came up to me and said, Uncle, they're putting juju on you. Meaning they were making a sacrifice, invoking demonic spirits that they would put a curse on me in order to stop the progress and the work of the gospel. And not even a few minutes after he had, I had received that word, the mosque started blaring recitations of the hadiths on their megaphone to try to drown out the sound of the gospel. One little girl, Mieto, an orphan girl that we've taken in, was very scared of the zoo. When she heard them tell me, she was sitting right next to me, when she heard them tell me that they had put juju on me, she was scared. She came to me, she said, Pupa, they put juju on you, oh, that serious thing, oh. And I said, Mieto, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. There's nothing that their juju can do against me. We walked from there back to the mission after this gospel outreach, and people are telling me that they were putting juju and trying to curse us and trying to drown us out, etc. The imam, who, by the way, these Muslims are very secretistic. The imam is involved with the demonic cult. When we got to the mission, the imam was sitting at my front door waiting to ask me for some ibuprofen. (laughs) The man who had just had them sacrifice in the devil's bush against me, had the, the mosque blare recitations of the hadiths, was there to ask for help from a Christian missionary. I believe that was an incredible testimony for those who heard what had gone on, and for Mieto especially. Even when we were up in Jinnamana doing that medical outreach I just showed you, one day I was dispensing meds, and Mieto came running in and literally hid behind me in the chair and said, Pupa, the devil's coming, oh, the devil coming, oh. And what happens is, is that someone will dress up in thatch and dance around the village, and they believe that that's a spirit, and that you cannot touch him, you cannot talk to him, and all the kids run away. In fact, the devil is, is allowed to go through the village and take whatever he wants to. The devil comes to steal, right? Kill and destroy. Well, there's a cool story about that. James Varney, when he was there in the 1970s, the devil was dancing through the village. He was on the side of the road selling his, his papaya and his uh, plantains and so on. The devil came and grabbed one of his pineapples, and James Varney grabbed the devil's hand and shook it. <laughs> That's not something you do. He got hauled before the elders and the chiefs, and as he was bring, brought before them, God gave him the words to speak. He said, under Liberian law, you cannot bring a conviction against someone unless you have two witnesses. And, the, and so if you want to convict me, you have to call the devil to come and testify against me. But to call the devil to come and testify against them would have to admit that that's a human being in thatch. 
They got so angry at him, they just threw him out and said, don't touch the devil again. (laughs) Well, that day when we were doing the medical outreach, Miato came running and hid behind me. She was so scared. And I told her, I said, baby, you don't have to be afraid. In fact, I even said, you said the devil, I think you mean that, that human being that dressed up in Thatcho. And everybody was like, you don't say that. Well, today, Mieto, if, if the kids start running away from the devil, will say, she'll laugh at them and say, that's a human being dressed up in Thatcho. <laughs> I believe the Lord used this as part of a testimony to show this little girl who is in fear that she has nothing to fear if she's in Christ. Um, that's what the Zoe are all about. It's about holding people in bondage to fear It's about power. If you want to be successful, you have to be in the zoo. If you're a politician and you want to be successful, you have to go and sacrifice to demons. If you're a woman and you want to be successful, you have to go and go through those rituals, etc., etc. It's all about fear and power and intimidation. In fact, a Peace Corps lady uh, over the river, across the river from us, was the only teacher for the high school in the whole district. She had a girl... One of her students that came out of the devil's bush, ran, literally escaped from there, had a really bad infection. She got so angry, she spoke out against it in her class. That night, she was surrounded by the Zoe, who were dressed up and masquerading, and told her if she opened her mouth again, she would die. Within 24 hours, Peace Corps pulled her out. And within a month, all of Peace Corps in the interior of Liberia have been pulled out. So there only remains Peace Corps in the capital city in Monrovia. The thing is, during the Liberian Civil War, the Zoe were very much involved. They would tell people things like, if you cut out your enemy's heart and eat it, you will be invincible to bullets. You actually had rebels who, in fact, one of them uh, today is a pastor. He was called General Butt Naked because he would eat uh, 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 his enemy's heart and believe that he was invincible so much that he would go into battle butt naked. During the Liberian Civil War, the Freemason Temple in Monrovia got involved with the cult and started performing human sacrifices. It became public, and the president, after the Liberian Civil War, shut down the Masonic Lodge and made the Zoe practices illegal. In 2018, the new socialist government took over. The president is part of the Zoe. They repealed the law which banned female genital mutilation and the different practices which they do. And today... The Zoe now have regained their legitimacy and are growing. And that's who we're finding the most. In fact, when our school opened this last school year, they refused to let the kids out of the devil's bush to come to school. We had to fight in the first month of the school being open to get our kids, our whole student body back. That's the kind of resistance, the demonic influence that we face in this area. But God is greater. The gospel is going forth. The word of God is being preached. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to himself. Today, the daughter of the imam, that imam who had them make sacrifices against us and then came and asked for for ibuprofen, his daughter is a believer. Her name is Benu. You can pray for her. She's in fellowship in our assembly. Benu stood up one Sunday morning and gave testimony. She had put her faith in Christ and her father disowned her. said, you're no longer my daughter. Her brothers and sisters will not talk to her. She has lost all family ties that she has or had. 
And I remember when she stood up and, and she shared that testimony, she was in tears. And I was reminded of what Jesus said when his, his mom and them were doubting him and, and sent them and said, your, your mom and your brothers are calling for you. And he said, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? And he pointed to his disciples. I encouraged that sister saying, look around you. This is your family. Encourage her. She married one of the teachers at Grace Christian Academy, our school. They had a baby. We dedicated that child in the chapel. The gospel is advancing. Be encouraged. Even though maybe sometimes in America uh, we don't see the progress that we'd like to see, we don't see the response to the gospel that we would like to see, but take heart. This is God's work, not ours. Ours is to bring the message. It is God who draws. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts. The Word of God is going forth. Nothing will stop that, not even the Zoe. No juju can stop it. He will accomplish His work. He will accomplish His plan. And when that plan is completed, the last brick in 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 the temple of God is placed, you and I will be called home. The trumpet will sound. All of this will be behind us. The politics of today, the things that we worry about, etc., will be finished. And based on His promises, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for the privilege that it is to be a child of God, and so we are. Lord, we thank You for Your eternal plan and purpose in Christ that resulted in our salvation. We thank You that though we were enemies of God, though we were depraved and and in our minds uh, uh, even enemies of God, Lord, You saved us. You redeemed us. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work, and the sons of disobedient. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the the Zoe cult is in Liberia. But yet, you showed us mercy. You made us to be your child. You redeemed us. And through your love and grace, made us to be born again. We thank you, Father, for this privilege. And we pray that as we sojourn as strangers as citizens of the kingdom of heaven on this earth, I pray that you would help us to always abound in the work of the Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would not be slack in in, in our call to preach the gospel and not only to preach, but to make disciples. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be focused on the eternal perspective, on what you're seeking to accomplish and not get so caught up in the, the politics and current events that we forget the greater picture of what you are doing. Lord, I thank you for what you have accomplished and are doing in Liberia and around the world. We recognize, Lord, that the body of Christ is big, that you are working through it. You are accomplishing great things, and it is to your glory. And so, Father, as we depart from here, I pray that you be magnified, that you be glorified, that you be praised, that the hearts of your people, myself included, would be stirred to be in awe of what you have accomplished to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.